Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like when your fantasy league meets up at your house. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this is anything but a fantasy. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Before we start, apologies for the occasional bit of interference in the audio. It's the joys of internet communication, sadly. The pod is an absolute cracker, so we hope it won't impact too much on your enjoyment of it. Hi, and welcome to the latest regularly irregular Bike Radar meets. I'm Warren, the senior tech editor for all things road here at Bike Radar, and I'm happy to introduce, introduce to you all the talented team from Bourbon Bikes. That's the guys behind this year's newly crowned Road Bike of the Year, the Boardman SLR 9.4. So first up, we've got James Ryan. He's the brand and design manager for Boardman. Matt Dowler, who looks after everything product. And finally, founder, Olympian, cycling advisor and campaigner and all-round racing legend, Mr. Chris Boardman. Morning, guys. Morning. Morning, Warren. Right, so today we're here to talk about um, this year's Bike of the Year and this um, this kind of new wave of, of Boardman bikes has done phenomenally well if we sort of go in ascending order. Um my compatriots over on on bike radar were looking after our we call it a thousand pound bike test but with all the price pressures this year not many of those bikes are at a thousand pounds anymore but they were around that mark you guys came out on top with the the sort of gravel focused adv 8.9 and then um, across bike radar and cycling plus um you took the best value title um for the gravel adv 9.0 and overall title with the slr 9.4 um, so I guess first off, um, how do you guys feel about um, doing so well this year up against some really, really big and, and stiff competition? I, I'll let the guys get into the spec, but um, I, I don't think it, it would be false modesty to say anything other than we've always punched a bit above our weight. Um, and that's what we've enjoyed being small, nimble, um, and make bikes that we want to ride ostensibly. Um, and it sounds incredibly simplistic, but, but that's, always kept us in a good place and in touch with what's going on and in touch with what's coming. 
Um, and it's nice that it's recognised with things like this. Yeah, agreed. You know, to follow on from Chris, Boardman's always been about delivering fantastic performance for the money um, in the bikes and, and, you know, making bikes that we want to ride that, that deliver that sort of ride experience that, that makes it fun for everybody. And um, to get that recognition across three bikes in the range is, is just ace for us because it, it recognises that hard work that we're putting in um, and, and shows people what those bikes are, are really about. Um, I mean, I was just going to say, I mean, you know, um, for, for any of the listeners that um, maybe aren't quite uh, as aware of Boardman as a brand, um, you, you haven't really been around that long. You know, it's 2007. 2007, yeah. we sold our first bikes um, when the Tour de France rolled into London. So it was right product, right time. Um, it was about as good as it got, really, to be honest. It was just uh, one of those perfect storms. But what, what do they say about luck? Readiness meets opportunity. And that's how we kicked off. And you had some really good early success. I mean, what, 2008, you got Nicole Cook winning, winning the Olympics on, on your bike. Well, we, and... we, were, um, we were part of Dave Brailsford's first pro team, uh, which people don't realise. I mean, the first team that we set up was for the GB women's squad with Halfords because the, the women's team, we needed to give them a racing programme. It wasn't available easily. So we set up a team uh, with Halfords. We launched it in a zoo if I remember, and uh, yeah, in front of the slot um, enclosure, which was a bit weird. Um, but I don't think any brand could have hoped to have Olympic gold medals um, uh, and world champion in the same, you know, in the very first year. So so we did, there was an element of luck involved. Um, uh, yeah, and it, it, was, uh, it was a lovely start. And, uh, you know, I think as now as we, you know, could move on to, to 2021, from that kind of early start where, um, for me, as an outsider looking at, at the brand, you seem to be kind of quite heavily focused on that on that that racing thing, which is obviously your you know your life, as it were. Um, but now this new range to me seems more about more about the rider, still about performance, but it's more about the rider rather than the racing, as it were. I mean, is that is that a, a do you see that as a cultural shift, or is that just a shift in the way you guys are thinking? Well, from my perspective, we. I suppose I've never really thought about it like that, but we've followed. Um, I, I personally have got me int- got involved and got interested in the things that I'm interested in. So to start with, I was very close to the race and I was involved with the R and D team at British Cycling and really curious about tech, and, and that was expressing itself in the product. Um, but I've also got more and more, as you know, involved in everyday bike riding and using a bike to explore which is what it is for me now. Photography is a massive passion. This is a way for me to go places you couldn't go by any other means in terms of distance or, or its uh, remoteness. Um, and so I got really interested in, in gravel bikes before they were gravel bikes. Um, and we started to develop those a few years ago and really enjoyed that. And that's, that's kind of like if I had one bike now, that's what it would be. You know, it's an adventure bike and that's it. So... I suppose from my perspective, we followed what I enjoy um, and it seems to be what the public enjoy as well. I think gravel, I'm not surprised it's taken off. I remember riding around on a prototype years ago in Scotland and thinking, right, this is the only bike I need now. I'll borrow a hardtail or a road bike if I, if I need one, but this is me. And the rest of the world seems to have gone, these are really good, aren't they? <laughs> this is the only bike I need. Um, so it's lovely. Yeah, been really enjoyable journey, really. Nice that it's not linear too. 
I mean, I, I take it back to what you said earlier. Then you you've always been really interested in tech, and you know, obviously, anybody who remembers your your um, phenomenal racing career, tech seemed to be really at the forefront. And I'm not just talking, obviously, the Lotus bike and all the UCI Ferrari about that. But I'm thinking, like, you know, I remember you using things like you know Mavic Zap and Mavic. Well, Tronic, yeah, that was. Um, I is, mean, '96 was the first. I only know because I've been doing some filming about this recently that we made a fully integrated, all cables internal, electric geared bike in 1996. You know, <laughs> um, I mean, there's, there's a story around I mean, with an hour to go before the Olympics, it actually failed. <laughs> so, so all this beautiful cable work and everything internal, it was just, it was a thing of beauty. It flexed like hell, but it was a, it was a thing of beauty. We actually had to cut all the cables with scissors and just tape another set on the outside. And if you actually look at pictures of that day, there's a piece of wire going just across, just going through air from uh, frame to handlebar just to make it work, uh, which was absolutely tragic, a tragedy. <laughs> but I mean, that, and that was, that's what cutting edge is. You know, you take risks and think about electric gears as they work perfectly or they don't. And now I'm fascinated by, um, by all basically wireless. Wireless is the future. Two years, there, there are no wires. Uh, manufacturers love it. There's nothing to shove inside a frame. Uh, batteries are accessible. All of that stuff. Um, and I think that's the future. And then you're already starting to integrate with phones and all the rest of it. So the potential for more and more tech and to get into the space of adventure bikes with the same thing, it's all there now. I mean, I think... Um... Uh, you know, that's one thing I've I've also noticed about Boardman over the years. You know, you've you've been as a brand quite an early adopter. I think you know you're one of the first brands out there to to partner with SRAM when SRAM launched the road group set. You know, and and if you think back at that time, the dominance in the market of of predominantly Shimano and then you know for people who could afford it, Campag uh, to go with this. You know, these upstarts from Chicago seemed uh, you know seemed pretty out there. And then of course when SRAM launched the original wireless ETAP. Again, you were one of the original production partners there. Um, so it seems like taking risks is, you know, something you did with tech when you wrote, but you're also you're something happy for the brand to do as well. I mean, I guess I can bring Matt in on that as well, because he's a, you know... It sure, would be sure. good if somebody else said something, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. I think um, it, you pitch it as taking risks, Warren, which I, I don't really see that it is. I think what we try and do is we make sure that we have a real thorough understanding of, of any product before it goes on a bike. Um, but when we see something that's a genuine game changer, like original ETAP or bringing access down to the rival level, we're really keen to jump on it because we know it's it's going to make such a difference to how people ride, you know, that simplicity, um, that consistency of shifting and, and not having all those cables to maintain and everything, you know, it, it's something that, we see the benefit in and we know that our customers are going to see a benefit in. So we're keen to jump on it straight away and uh, and get ourselves ahead of the game, as it were. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's certainly, you know, it's obviously it's borne out with the with the, with the the 9.4. I mean, I've, um, uh, I was uh, doing a podcast yesterday, which is a kind of a roundup on, on the whole bike of the year thing. And, you know, um, me and Tom from Bike Radar were, were chatting through the whole road thing. And I I, I was just sort of saying with the, with the 9.4, um, I had it in my garage, and it was basically standing alongside uh, um, one of the rival bikes in the test, which is twelve grand. You know, well, you know, about ten pounds short of being twelve twelve thousand pounds. And um, I kept saying to Tom, "Well, every time I went out in the morning, I was choosing a bike to go out and test ride. I kept veering towards the Boardman, which you know, I could have bought 
five of them for the same money as, as the bike it was you know lent up against and I, I kind of you think you've got to have gotten something right and it's not just down to the the, the kit you've put on it so i want to sort of dig a little bit into the frame set because you know the, the slr previously was um, quite a kind of full-on race bike really um but this new generation one you seem to have retained that race bike feel yet made it a much more accessible bike it's um it's got that kind of all day comfort going for it. Still got all the handling and you still seem to have retained lots and lots of that kind of um, really clever aero stuff that you've, you've been developing, you know, over the years since you brought out, you know, bikes like the original air. Um, so I just want to know, was that, was that part of the original concept? You wanted to have a bike you could race, but have a bike that you could cruise around on a, you know, a Sunday club run with your friends sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. So, I think historically we, we had three road platforms. We had the Air, which was a pure aerodynamic race bike. We had the SLR Race, which was a very long and low, light and stiff, again, pure race bike. And we had the SLR Endurance platform, which had this great geometry that kind of balanced being comfortable, um, but still being able to get down and, and ride fast when you want to. And what we wanted to do with the new SLR platform is kind of blend the best qualities of each of those three bikes together into one platform that, that can kind of do it all really. So um, the current SLR retains the geometry from the old SLR endurance. So it's got that balance between being able to sit up on the, the tops and, and spin for hours and hours um, and the comfort that, that was designed into that frame as well. But it takes some aerodynamic learning from the air platform so we're, we're optimizing um a, a lightweight endurance bike aerodynamically uh, and it, it retains a lot of that that stiffness um and kind of uh, aggressive feel under power that came from the slr race platform so we we think that it makes a perfect road bike that can kind of do a little bit of everything you know it's it's stiff enough and and fast enough to race on and hopefully if the uh, if the olympics go ahead sarah story will be racing on one uh fingers crossed I'm always, I'm always a bit I'm a bit wary of the you know oh, oh it can do everything because it's it's suspiciously convenient, but the evolution of this um, the evolution of this so the original SLR was just about weight you know let's see if we can get you know frames down to 800 grams and you know and and it was really light and because there's that thing that everyone does including me having spent decades in wind tunnels the first thing you do is pick it up <laughs> you know you just can't help it and it's lovely when you go oh isn't that light um so we went after you know wait let's see if we can make a really nice light and very stiff bike and we did uh and at the same time as matt was mentioning where we did the air platform uh which was really stiff really stiff um and you could physically feel the difference between the two and then you looked at it and you went actually there's only a couple of hundred grams in it. So in terms of frame weight, that's enormous. But once you put kit on it, it's not so much. Once you put a rider into the package, you're down to the 0.00s and you're thinking, well, you know, it's actually, is it worth it? But an aero bike, you could, you could feel the difference. And then the truncated aerofoil stuff, which is Mike Burroughs' original work, uh, again, back in the early 90s, but not picked it up. But that, that had developed, we had a way... Uh, access to a wind tunnel to be able to test the difference and it was genuinely possible to get all of it together uh, and i'm sure there's more evolutions to come in the future but it's um it is possible so you can actually give a sarah story a, a bike to ride in the, in the paralympics and she is not compromised it's a bit it's a bit like 
In the Formula One, when they had supercars and they literally had a fan sucking things to the floor, uh, and they found that when you when you left the floor, suddenly you had zero traction and it was like lethal. So they said, right, we're banning it. And all the speeds went backwards. And the manufacturers got into um, CFD analysis and, and they started to look at it and they got better. And now they're faster than they ever were. So it's, it's kind of the same thing, really. You had to make a choice. And over the last five years, you've been able to merge those things and you don't have to make a choice anymore. And the understanding of carbon layups to make it comfortable. And as Matt said, the geometry, geometry is ancient. You know, that, that's the reality. You, you know, once you've got a good functional set of geometry, then the other bit is material and shapes and functionalities. But comfort is something, once you, you understand it, then you can keep incorporating it. I mean, I think that's, you know, that's that's the thing with that, the, the SLR is like you have done an incredible job on, on, that, on that chassis because you've retained a sub 900 gram frame. And, you know, I think what well, the fork is around 350 grams as well. You know, that's, at that price point, and for anybody who doesn't know, the um, the nine point four retails at two thousand seven hundred. Um, you know, those weights are kind of super bike weights. You know, that's 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 bikes that cost five figures, not not this. So I'm kind of intrigued at how you've managed to to do that when you know some of the biggest brands in the world can't can't get anywhere close to those numbers. Well, we don't give millions of pounds to pro teams for one. We do put money into R and D and development um, because all of those costs. Uh, have to be born somewhere, you know, and they're important because you need to be visible. There's no point having a great thing that nobody knows about. I suppose it's it's striking that balance, really. Um, and I, even, it's not the bike itself. I'm kind of banging on here. I'll let the guys get in in a minute. But, but on, our, on our little webcams here, because I can't see them, I can't see when they want to break in. Um, I, I think it's just doable, Um I think it's just finding that balance. The ingenuity, a lot of the ingenuity is, is also about the communication, how you actually get to people, what do people want to hear, how are they absorbing information. I mean, this is your core business, and that's evolved rapidly. And you're almost moving from bicycle science into social science, um, and you're moving into what do people want to hear. And I'm not convinced that people want to, somebody rides it in the Tour de France, therefore that's what I've got to ride. I think that's... That's decades old now. People want to feel something. They want to connect and they want to go, oh, yeah, that's an adventure I want to go on. Um, and so that's what we talk about more. I think that comes back to kind of what what the inspiration was behind the SLR platform a little bit as well, because we didn't want to make a world tour bike and, and market it to people who were riding sportives and are riding club brands and, and you know, using it as a, as a more general road bike. That feels quite disingenuous to us. Um, so... It was very much pitched around how people are using the bike. You know, how, how are people in the UK? We're a UK-based brand and we design for riding in the UK. How are people going to use that bike? So therefore, do we need to put it under a World Tour team for people to see it and recognise that it, it's relevant to how they're going to use the bike? Probably not. And that takes a whole you know chunk of, of cost out of the, the process. And the other thing is our sales model is, is very lean. So... We work directly with factories. There's, there's no middlemen in between. Um, we do the R&D ourselves and there's no extra costs hidden in those layers. And we then sell direct through Halfers and through Treads in the UK. So there's not an extra layer of margin in there going to um, a shop or a distributor. So it means that we can offer the same quality as some of these brands who are charging you know, eight, nine, ten thousand pounds for, for a superbike, um, but at much more attainable price points. 
And I, and just to add to that, I think I mean when I was going back through some of the you know some of the, the past winners uh, you know of various awards within Cycling Plus and there's you know Borman has featured you know going way I mean I think I saw one you know 2013 14 you know best value road bike for the you know road team carbon and things like that so it's something that's always been in the brand's DNA to you know in terms of spec value quality and performance that is one of our key you know our key pillars and it's something that we've had essentially since you know since 2007-2008 and, and it's something that you know Matt Chris you know the whole team worked tirelessly to achieve and as Chris said there's, there's there is additional costs obviously that we you know we we, we avoid because just because that that goes against the model and, and what we would stand for as a brand it's a, so. it's a founding philosophy I mean you go back you mentioned uh Nicole Cook winning a gold medal well we took a frame there and granted we put different wheels on it and different equipment but we had to put lead under the saddle to bring it up to the legal weight limit. And you could go and buy that frame out of the same mould in Halfords for £1,000. And it won an Olympic gold medal. And we proved, I mean, we were the first, as you know, to bring a, bring a carbon road bike at £1,000 to market. And, um, and that was amazing. But that was a founding, a founding uh, principle was to give people the best possible value for money. Um, and, and I think we've stuck to that for all of our 13 years. I mean, a brand is, I was talking about this yesterday, and it, I know it sounds rather cheesy and melodramatic, but a brand is a promise that is visible in actions, and I think that's one we've stuck to from the word go. The other piece, I guess, Warren, is, is the way that we look at components as well. So Chris was talking about value, and I prefer to think of it more as kind of performance for the money rather than value for money, because there's, there's this connotation with value about being cheap. Um, and we run a really extensive program of, of testing components from a whole load of different suppliers to make sure that we're achieving that best kind of ratio of, of performance versus cost. So great example of that is the, the Alex Rems wheels, which are on the SLR 9.4. So not the sexiest brand in the world, um, but actually a huge, huge manufacturer who make a massive quantity of wheels for a whole load of different brands. And those RXD three wheels, they weigh 1550 grams you know that's proper performance level wheels with a 30 mil deep rim modern wide rim profile and if we were specking the equivalent mavic or falcon wheel on there you know it would be another 300 400 pounds onto the retail price point would there be any performance benefit to to a rider having a mavic wheel over the alex rims wheels not really there's, there's not anything measurable there so we're always weighing up those um, decisions on how they're going to impact the ride um, and balancing that that kind of cost and, and value against the performance. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, that's one of the things that I did pick up on um, through the testing of it because I was looking at kind of comparable bikes for the same sort of money. And you were, as you say, it was those kind of um, bigger name wheel brands um, that I almost think some brands believe that's what people want because they they've got that brand association thing going on but when you're dealing with those i mean some of the some of the bikes at similar price that it was up against you know i was looking at the wheel weights on it and they're getting close to half a kilo heavier and that that kind of you know that sort of mass that you've got to turn is um you can feel it when you ride you know so i think that's you know things like that the alex wheels is just a, you know such a smart choice as is you know um using rival axis which you know we've, we've talked about a little bit uh, as well but then you know coming and uh, bringing it back to the frame you know um uh, what i also really liked about it is it 
and this comes also from having conversations with um, with with Matt and James about about the bike um, as I was testing it, uh, etc. Is it just seems to have been you know you can tell this bike was designed in the UK by people who ride in the UK because it's got all that tech going on with the, the you know the lightness the aerodynamics etc etc but it's got increased tire clearances because we in the uk prefer to run bigger tires because our roads are so terrible because the roads and are getting shitter mud- <laughs> yeah exactly and and it's got proper mudguard mounts because it's wet shit. here a lot yeah yeah so you know i mean it, it's, it's when you see things like that you just go at last thank you you know it's a uh, you know i can't remember the amount of times over the years that i've you know i've reviewed a bike and gone oh, it's brilliant but why on earth has it got these tyres on it? Because I spent more time by the side of the road fixing punches than I did riding, you know. And um, But the yeah, SLR is, you know, an out-and-out front-runner in, in, in the whole test. was. It's that amalgamation of all those clever bits of thinking that, it, you know, it's like thinking things through and making sure you were you, you designed what you wanted rather than throwing money at a problem. You know? And some of it you don't it's another there's no choice so why wouldn't you um so i mean mudguard eyes i'm particularly it, it sounds daft but i love that because and, and the biggest frustration is you have to keep telling people that they're there because they can't see them so they assume that they're not you know and i had to do some social media posts to actually just get across the fact they are they're on the inside of the fork and when you're not using them they're invisible so you know and it, and it keeps it it keeps that versatility at no at no price, and it, you know the way the way Matt's incorporated them is um, it's just lovely. And bigger tires, I mean, thank God people have cottoned on to bigger tires are a good thing. And now it's a case of just give me an excuse to go even bigger because it's really comfy as well, um, and it, it just makes the whole experience nicer. So bigger tires are just you know that that we should have done this decades ago. I mean that's one of the, that's one of the things I was you know I wanted to ask you because. That you know, a lot of the the research and a lot of the kind of rolling resistance testing is showing that actually a bigger tire is, is that fast. You know, it's faster because it's got that that shorter squatter contact patch up to a certain point. You know, you can go over it where those things outweigh each other. But I mean, I mean, Chris, have you got any of your old old bikes from your pro racing days? I mean, because I've got some bikes that you know, I I'm terrible. I never sell bikes. I just hoard. Oh no, I'm, I, I'm, know, I'm um, no, normally I'm quite the opposite. I keep nothing. There's no trophies in our house. There's not. There is no shrine to me around here. Um, and the guys have heard me talk about it over the years. I've probably said it to you. Somebody gave me a big piece of the track where I broke the world hour record, and it's got like the mark on it. And uh, and the only reason I kept it is it's really good for getting the wheelbarrow into the house with all the uh, logs in for the winter. <laughs> you know. And, and every time I used it, it made me smile. But I haven't said that um, in the garage. I've got. Um, two-hour record bikes just hanging up. So there's kids' bikes for my grandkids who live just, um, just well, they live um, on our property. And there's there's two couple of kids' bikes. There's uh, an urban bike with mud guards because that's my transport now. I don't have a car to go to the station. Um, there's uh, there, there's um, a gravel bike there, or adventure bike, our adventure bike, 9-0. That's hanging up, been using that recently. Um, and then there's a couple of our record bikes um and it's and it just makes me smile you know it's a standard bike rack in a garage and it's just such an eclectic mix of what's going on in your life and a little bit of history well i do i mean i as I, I, I say well i do recall when uh you know when we were we were looking to do some you know shows and stuff and chris have you got any you know your old stuff that we could use to, you know as a kind of a 
you know, an homage to, to your stuff. And he, he brought in an old GB suitcase that was literally rammed full, you know, like just literally just chucked in there of, of jerseys and awards. And it was like, you know, like a cyclist's just like dream of like, well, this is from, oh, this is a Tour de France jersey, Chris. Well, it's just chucked in your... your yeah, GB but you gave it me right? back. I was trying to get rid of it and you made me take it back. And it's still in the garage now. I'm very surprised when, I, when you see that sort of thing. I went years ago. I did a feature on the um, the history of Bianchi and and went over to to their factory. And there's a uh, there's this little old guy that looks after their like heritage collection. And the collection of bikes they've got there is astonishing. Going right back to when Bianchi was predominantly a, a motorcycle manufacturer, um, but and they've got everything in between. They've got Gimondi's bikes and Coppi's bikes and Pantani's and 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 um, he was, he meticulously cleans them every day and everything and then, and then he's got this pot like on next to his work stand just full of all these oily rags and I was looking at it and going that looks a bit weird it looks a bit special went over and like lifted the rags up and it was um, it was Gimondi's Giro d'Italia trophy and I went wow you've got this shouldn't this be in? and he went nah he gave it to me it's good it keeps the rags in one place you know and I was like that's amazing you know that the things that most fans would consider which should be you know behind glass and, and revered I like it. I wish I'd kept some stuff, actually. Um, the problem at the time, though, when I look backwards, is, is because we were constantly pushing it and wanted the best thing. When you were using something, that piece of equipment or component that was was cutting edge. And so you went to the next race and it would be taken off that bike and be put onto something else. So it was just constant evolution. It wasn't a case of, right, we've used that, now keep it as it is. That stuff that was it generally was a prototype, wasn't available somewhere else, and you needed it. So I, my first, the first piece of carbon fiber work, I actually designed and got made the bikes for my time trial bike. So um, what you saw the very first Lotus bike in the Tour de France, for example, and we had to have some real cocked up look ergo stem and some welded bars for me to actually get low enough. And it looked disgusting and it was offensive. And so I drew up and got my own handlebar fork all in one designed uh, and made. Um, and it was lovely. And we didn't go, oh, wouldn't it be great to have kept that bike? But then they went on to the Our Record bike. And, and so... The bikes didn't exist. It wasn't a um, traditional pro thing where, oh, look, this is the bike I won the Giro on, and now it, we, we keep it and we, we freeze it in time. Um, um, my history was just constant evolution and the next thing and just making stuff up. Um, and I'm a little bit sad those times have gone now, really. You know, everything is, you know, printed out of titanium at the highest level and... It, you know, it's, it's, it's out of your hands. It's more like Formula One where the driver and the car are separate things and you have no responsibility for the car. You just get to use it for a little while. So I guess, if, you know, when you're going back to that, when you knew, were, you know, you were at the sort of groundbreaking edge of, of, of what was trying to be done, it was, you're saying you were just so much more hands-on. It was like, you know, you, you, you were... Almost literally hands-on. You know, like you, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it was literally, it was fettel things at home take it to the mechanics and go, right, keep it like that. Uh, and I'd often have a battle with the mechanics. And there was stuff that was, you know, complete failures. When titanium came along and everyone went, titanium, whatever it is, make it out of titanium. And we had titanium spokes. You might you might be able to just about remember them when titanium spokes came along. It's like, oh, they're great. And I used to build my own wheels, you know, for the Tour de France and that kind of thing. I built my own wheels, which is ludicrous now when I think about it. And titanium spokes at the time, <clears throat> we didn't know about, things like alloys 
<laughs> and the fact that, you know, these spokes have been made in Russia from pure titanium and you think, oh, pure, that's good. No, actually, it means it just keeps stretching. And as you tighten your spokes, they don't get any tighter. They just get longer and thinner. Um, and they were awful wheels. And the mechanics were always just looking at my stuff. And because I had a lot of status in the team, they were kind of, I could just see them going, Okay. And, you know, and I just made their, their job a nightmare. And those wheels used to just fell apart really quickly. But now, would you, you know, there's no way you'd be able to do that because there's so many reputations at stake because there's so much money involved. You, you don't get to do that anymore. Um, so I'm sounding like a real old fart, really, looking back into the days of black and white photography. And, um, but, you know, it was great to be around at a time when innovation was so fast. And to an extent, so fast and loose in terms of equipment. I mean, it did seem to be, you know, there were there were brands out there then, you know, even the big established brands that were prepared to take risks. You know, I, I think um, that's what I always used to love about Mavic. Mavic seemed to be a brand that were never afraid to fail. You know, hence no, no, Zap, Nectronic. And... <laughs> yeah. <Never. laughs> well, Mavic were a brand that continuously, they got 90% of the way there with something really good, like Electronic Gears, and then went, oh, sod it, let's dump that and go in another direction. And you go, no, you were, you were that close. You and were they so used close, to do that yeah. time and again with equipment. You know, they had, they had some really snazzy spoke designs and uh, sort of hook and, hook and pull styles. And they did lots of stuff that was clever. And then, but I admired that. I mean, you know, you flow forward to SRAM. You know, if you want it to function, Shimano is fantastic. You know, you're out in the wilds and it, and it was super. But SRAM, certainly early on now, I think they've really smoothed it out now, but they push it. They just keep pushing it. And I really admired that. I, they were the company I liked to spend time with. Um, and they're a very different philosophy. And in the end, I think they, they really stole a march. But because of that philosophy, they came up with wireless gears, you know, really good wireless gears that has... Well, it's, it's industry tran transforming. They forced everybody else to follow suit. Um, and they're the fun people to be involved with, really. It's not always a smooth ride, though. We've, uh, we've circled around the bikes. We've talked about bikes quite a lot. And then we've gone off at some pretty impressive tangents, which is always good. <laughs> um, so I guess, you know, we've, uh, we've probably uh, kept people uh, listening for long enough. Um, so just to round things off, um, I'd just like to almost get a steer on, you know, where next? Where next for, for Bob Moon as a brand? Because, you know, you've you've got these bikes now. The ADV range is superb. You know, it's um, it's just fabulous range of gravel bikes. Um, the SLR, just for me, just seems like a, the perfect platform for most riders. Um, you've broken into e-bikes. So, Chris, I'd quite like, I'd, you know, I'd be interested to see your take on, on the whole um, growth of the e-bike. Um, and... And then, yeah, literally, where you know, where next for for Boardman? Well, e-bikes are. I mean, we know we know in the industry they've been around for decades, and over ten years ago we went to Eurobike, and everybody had e-bikes, and you thought, right, this is it. And in the UK, we just ignored it, and the rest of Europe went, oh, hell, e-bikes are really good, aren't they? UK, we just ignored it. We just, you know, we just didn't connect with it at all until a couple of years ago. And somehow the switch happened, like any moment in a culture change, they changed from being cheating them for old people to actually getting people to have a go. And it makes you smile, you know, and they're a good laugh. And as soon as they became a good laugh, suddenly that's a whole different proposition. Uh, and I think it's probably helped 
by the, the mountain bike world who adopted because they were sick of going uphill to do the nice bit that they really enjoyed going downhill and they were an early adopter. And I was spending time in Scotland a couple of years ago and I realised that almost all the bikes that I'm seeing are electric. And so it, I suppose in, in a way it's a bit like Apple reverse engineering a, company, a computer company by inventing a phone and then and then selling all the other products off the back of that. That was their way in. But in terms of transport, it's it's actually now changing the continent. So we know Holland, for example, has, has always, well, since the 70s, been very um, very big on bikes, shall we say. But they all of their development was inter-urban, inter uh, and everything was about getting from homes to stations and, and just really quite localised, really making that convenient. And now they're having to build differently. They're building intra-urban between settlements because people have gone from 5k journeys to 15k journeys simply because of e-bikes something that actually makes it viable and more convenient to go further um, and that is coming to the uk and it's coming quickly and i think um e-bikes are transformational uh, and if there's any work i well i'll be doing with government it's to push that if you know if you want to push electric vehicles because cars are like that are the biggest electric cars are such a big problem for us because they give us a reason to not change. So if you're going to subsidise electric vehicles, bikes and buses are the only two things that you should be getting into. And luckily, the public's connecting with that too. And because it's a good laugh, they want to. So you're kind of pushing on an open door. And I suppose that leads into, I'll hand over to the guys now, but, but I suppose what next? To a large degree, I think you don't know. And I think that's quite exciting. But I... Bikes are a massive part of our future, culturally, politically, um, and I, and we are at the moment now where things are going to change um, because they have to. Even for people who hate bikes, they are the solution to the, our biggest problems that we face, global warming and the health crisis. And it's just getting to the point where that's unignorable. And there's a political will at the very top to make those changes. And all of those things the good laugh, uh, the crisis that we face, and political will in the UK at the very top are, have all converged in 2021. Um, we're going to see some big changes this year. That they're already there behind the scenes. Yeah, to bring it back to Bourbon a little bit. And, and <laughs> good us. idea, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've always had a core as a road brand uh, and we've got a great mountain bike range and a great hybrid range and a great um, gravel range and, and that's not going to change. But what Chris is talking about is what's really exciting for us at the moment because there's been this the start of this culture shift into cycling becoming this more mainstream thing and this opportunity to actually get around you know replace those short car journeys with a bike and that's what's really exciting for me because it gives us the opportunity to do stuff that's new that's different and actually ties in really well to our philosophy of you know how are people wanting to use these bikes and how can we make things easy and accessible for them and enjoyable when they're riding so um yeah, there'll be lots, lots of iterative development on roads and on mountain and on gravel, um, but some exciting opportunities in that sort of more more practical transport space as well. Yeah, and I think in addition to that, I mean, I'd like to say that it was, you know, it was it was planned, but we, our twenty twenty one range came out, uh, a you know, a significantly revised twenty twenty one range. If you look at the, the 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 amount of models we have in, I mean, what, Matt, what was it? You know, if we go back to the twenty eighteen nineteen range, how many models do we have in the range? Was it like Oh, we nearly seventy. Yeah, seventy odd models. You know, we we sat back. You know, when we were doing the the, the development work on the twenty twenty one range, and said, well, okay, what what you know what are we 
what can we do and what can we do well? You know, and I think you know the the stuff that we're seeing, the stuff that you've tested, Warren, is testament that you know I think we've made some you know we we made the right choices, but we you know laser focus down on certain aspects and certain areas and certain you know price points that we you know we're well known for and that we think we can we can deliver exceptional value exceptional performance uh, and then the new range is what matt 35 40 40 odd skews uh, yeah 36 skews um meaning that we could you know that our focus goes into them you know we uh, so yeah, I, th- I think, and, and obviously at a time when everybody wanted to buy a bike, everybody wanted to ride a bike. So, you know, we brought our prices down. We, you know, we're not at that super, super high end anymore. Uh, and, and, and a new raft of you know, cyclists, a new audience that are keen to get into cycling. Um, I think Borman, the range that we've got and, and what we're doing, you know, the stuff that Chris is doing as well is all really, really well set to, to stand us in good stead as we move forward. And as Matt said, we've got some, we've got some interesting stuff coming that we're really looking forward to, uh, to well, to finishing up and to getting out there, uh, and obviously carrying on with the twenty twenty one range and getting more, getting more bums on bikes. I mean, it, it also has um, great. I mean, it, it, and it's almost like we, thankfully, we seem to be singing off the the same hymn sheet. You know, I was um, the last few sort of editorial meetings we've had over on Cycling Plus. You know, uh, uh, we've all been talking about this 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 kind of cultural shift in the UK where where historically you know and i've been in bike journalism for decades now um bicycling in the uk has always been considered sport whereas you know my kind of thing now is right what we need to do is we need to turn cyclists into commuters and commuters into cyclists so it's sport and transport just coming together you know which i think you know even even people that commute you know now um they still tend to get get into their cycling kit they still tend to like her up and you know clip her shoes and that sort of thing and i and i was party to that you know my my office is 30 miles away um and i was always you know that guy but for the last couple of years you know i've got an e-bike with an enduro battery on it so it's got a crate on the front and so my back goes in that so i don't get a sweaty back and i ride you know i ride the 30 miles to work in relative comfort having a really good laugh um and I can do it in my in my civics, you know. So I haven't got to worry about changing and doing everything when I get to the office, and you know, I don't you don't know, break a sweat or everything. And and so it's it's just doable, you know. And you know, I think when we talk about this pandemic, you know, in the last year, I've put fifteen hundred miles into my e bike because I do the weekly shopping on it, um, and my car. I had to take my car for its MOT a month or so ago, and the mechanic was going, "Are you sure it's only done hundred eight miles since the last one?" You know, so. Um, I've kind of proven to myself that I don't need the car, you know. And so, well, I think everyone did that. I mean, in the midst of a terrible time, we last year, you know, we'd be crazy to not acknowledge and try and grasp hold of the good stuff that happened. And uh, I've said it before in the last few months, we effectively turned off global traffic. We turned it off. And for whatever reason, fantastic weather, um, uh, the trams are off. Or I don't want to use them because uh, I'm, I'm worried about infection. I'm bored. I want some exercise. I've got bored kids. Whatever the reason, people chose to ride a bike. And when we saw, I mean, we saw that when people feel safe, they will. Um, and what's more, they liked it. So everybody got to experience something that only the most unusual and unprecedented and probably unrepeatable of circumstances did everybody try something different? And suddenly we have a connection with normal people in normal clothes doing normal things. 
and you know almost like for e-bikes themselves they've got to just try something else and so when you talk about making some safe space they can connect to what you're thinking about because i had that experience last year and i really liked it um and now is the opportunity the scary bit for me is we've got months before that memory fades and we get back to normal which we're already doing but I think we've got more people in tune and understanding and empathise and want the same things uh, that that uh, we proved is the case. I mean, look at Paris, they're just going for it. And, um, and I, I think all those examples are going to clump together and we will see a cultural change. Let's keep the fingers crossed for that. Right, I think we definitely have uh, um, probably overstayed our welcome to the listeners now. Um, so thanks so much, guys, for your time. Um, congratulations on on your successes on the new bikes um and um we'll speak again soon awesome thanks Warren. fantastic yeah cheers Warren. thank you for listening to the bike radar podcast if you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling check out bikeradar.com radar.com